Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Designing the Future with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to transform industries. And importantly, they will discuss how these technologies and strategies can shake up the status quo in your company's future and help your organization move in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, you are in the right place. If you want to slog or ski and you're here in the Northeast, we're under a a whiteout snow condition, but we are cozy here in our studio. This is Designing the Future with Game Changers, one of our newer series, episode number two. Quick shout out to Charlotte Bowie and Jennifer Ford at SAP for sponsoring this. Let's see what the buzz on the street is. If I can look through the snow, I'll find the buzz. Oh, there it is. Here you go. You cannot endow even the best machine with initiative the jolliest steamroller never saw a jolly steamroller will not plant flowers that's a quote from walter Lippmann. oh my goodness and walter Lippmann, what does he mean well let's find out a little bit we're talking about technology obviously technology is moving at the speed of light we are hearing about machine learning and deep learning we're hearing about augmented reality and artificial intelligence and 3d printing they are all part of our lives they are surrounding us they are impacting us in many many ways you may or may not be aware of. So the question is, all of this innovation surrounding us, all of these brilliant minds, all of this creative energy, all of this future here now, well, one minute, how can the future be here now? That might be a little bit of a of a conundrum. Where is this all headed today, tomorrow, and in the far future? What will be the impact? Oh, if we only had a magical crystal ball, and I think we do. We have three experts on the future with us today here on the show. Let me just tell you who they are, and then we'll get started. Started. First up, I'll be welcoming a newcomer to Game Changers Radio. It's Josh Bernstein, VP of Technical Strategy for the Emerging Technologies Division at Dell EMC. How perfect for our topic today, Emerging Technologies. Joining him on the panel, we have two regulars on Game Changers. Gray Scott, I like to call you our resident futurist. He's a techno philosopher. I love that term. And founder and CEO of SeriousWonder.com. And he's also being joined by Jeremy C. Thomas, who's been on many times. Founder and Chief Catalyst at Carum, C-A-R-O-M, like the skiing term. So I understand Josh is back. We're having a couple phone issues, but he's back. And Josh has sent me a quote from Steve Jobs. Come on, everybody. You know Stephen Paul, Steve Jobs, 1955, sadly passed away October 5th, 2011. That was the day. Game Changers Radio debuted here on the Business Channel. He was an American information technology entrepreneur and inventor, co-founder, chair, and CEO of Apple, CEO and majority shareholder of Pixar Animation Studios, member of the Walt Disney Company's Board of Directors following its Pixar acquisition, on and on and on. And uh, let's see what the quote is that Josh has selected from the great lore of Steve Jobs' quotes. Here it is. I think if you do something and it turns out pretty good... Then you should go do something else wonderful, not dwell on it for too long. Just figure out what's next. And Josh Bernstein, that's what we're trying to do. Welcome to Game Changers. How are you, Josh? I'm here. Hi, I'm talking about you. You sent me a great (laughs) quote from Steve Jobs. How are you, Josh? I'm well. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on the show. 
We are delighted. So talk to me. Are you a big Steve Jobs fan? I don't know who isn't, but uh, how did you pick this quote? Because we're talking about designing the future, the impact of tech trends. As I said, when we say the future is here, the future is now, that's kind of a contradiction. Oh, that's great because he's our resident futurist. How can the future be here if it's the future and it hasn't happened yet? So talk to me about your selection of this quote, Josh. Well, I mean, this quote is uh, is really special to me. It's... Um it, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, you, you went from, from running data center infrastructure and working on Siri and doing all these really, really cool things at Apple, and you left Apple to go do something different. You know, what motivated you to do this? And um, ironically, it was this quote. Uh, shortly after Steve's passing, uh, they had a, a, a great memorial at, at the campus for him. And mm-hmm. all of these quotes around campus, you know, they kind of put up in very large places. And, and, and this quote particularly... Um, sits outside the cafeteria that we would walk through, you know, almost every day, go get lunch or even go get dinner. And, um, you know, I, I walked past it almost every day after his passing, and it really actually motivated me to, to leave Apple and go do something else and go find out what was next for me. I'd been at Apple for, for six years. Um, we had built Siri from, you know, zero, nothing, um, to, you know, hundreds of thousands of servers a- across the world in a very, very short period of time. We had done all kinds of interesting things, um, but there were still some problems that arose out of that, that situation that, that I hadn't solved yet. And so as I walked past the cafe every day more and more, this was the quote that sort of motivated me to, to move on and, and go see what was next, go see what was next for me, go see what was next for technology. And so it had a, a very strong motivating factor for me. Very, very interesting. Do you, do you think that uh, he was talking about not resting on your laurels? I know that's a very old-fashioned phrase, but just <laughs> don't dwell on it. Come on, move on. He was in a hurry to be creative, innovative, new, and fresh, wasn't he? There was always something. Was there, Well, you tell me, Josh. Was there always something new simmering on, on the, the not-quite-back-burner, the middle-burner in Steve Jobs' mind, the next thing he thought we wanted that we didn't even know about? Was that a way he worked? Yeah, I mean, Steve was always, I think, searching for something new and something different. And um, I think this quote also reflects that resting on your laurels, as you said. Like, um, he, he wanted, he, he was proud of his accomplishments. He wanted to, to sort of relish in them for a little bit. But he was careful not to dwell on them for too long. He was careful not to say, well, this is great. Let's just sit back and relax for a little while. And, um, you know, under his leadership and, and the, the culture and that, that idea still stays at Apple, but... Um, he was always pushing people to do more. Okay, this feature feels perfect. This feature feels really, really good. What's next? What are we doing next? You know, there was almost this, this anxiety and this energy about him uh, that drove people around him. It was a real privilege to be there when, when he was around. I can only imagine. Thank you very much, Josh. Pleasure to have you with us. And now let's move on to our second panelist, Gray Scott. Gray, before I read your quote from Ray Kurzweil, could the, could the future be here now if it didn't happen yet? Gray, help me with that. Well, there are, there are theories that, uh, you know, past, present, and future have already happened. And that, that to me, sounds really relevant uh, when you start to get into the quantum world. So mm. that's true. We are sort of arriving in the future uh, all the time. 
Interesting. Arriving in the future all the time. You always make me think so much, Gray. Let me give the quote that you've shared. Gray, how many times have you been on Game Changers? Are we up to 15, 20, 30 yet? What do you think? In five uh, I think years? it's about 15, yeah. Yeah, I think it's about 15. Really? I, I think you broke the sound barrier on that one in a very good way. I think you're our most frequent guest, and I, I hope you don't mind my calling you our resident futurist because I think you are. Thank you very much. Uh, Gray Scott has sent us a wonderful quote from Ray Kurzweil. Those of you who don't know Ray, KU R-Z-W-E-I-L. He's still with us, born in 1948. He's one of my my uh, almost leading, leading edge compadres in the baby boomer, boomer generation. He's American author, computer scientist, inventor, and futurist. He was involved in fields like OCR, that's optical character recognition, excuse me, text-to-speech synthesis. Uh, he's written books on health, artificial intelligence, transhumanism, the technological singularity, and one of Gray's future... T- Favorite topics, futurism. Here's the quote Gray selected from Mr. Kurzweil. Artificial intelligence will reach human levels by around 2029. Follow that out further to say 2045, we will have multiplied the intelligence, the human biological machine intelligence of our civilization a billion fold. Gray, those are so many numbers, I can't even get my arms around them. Why don't you tell us what he really meant? And and we're talking today about designing the future with tech trends. So wrap it all up for me. How does it all fit together? Well, I think, I think Ray, um, like most futurists, uh, have their eye on the future all the time. And part of that is extrapolating out into the future and trying to figure out the patterns that we have today. What do those patterns lead to? What do those innovations lead to? And it's pretty obvious, um, as we've talked about before on the show, Bonnie, that as we continue down this road of digitization, uh, we are becoming part of the machines. The machines are becoming part of us. We are sort of combining our biology. We're becoming what I've called before as biodigitized biodigitized beings on this planet. And, and Ray has said by 2045 that he thinks that that's probably the time that we'll achieve this. He's talking about the technological singularity here. And uh, I think he's actually moved that time frame up. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, maybe 2035, I think, is what he said recently. But um, he's been one of the futurists who, who have said and I've been saying this too, that we've been, we've been way too conservative with our predictions. And part of that is because when you have so many startups, when you have so many people designing the future, as we're talking about today, mm-hmm. if a company says, well, we can do this in five years, well, there's a kid in a garage somewhere who says, I, can bet I, I bet I can do it in two years. And so what happens is things become exponential. They, they start to grow exponentially. And that's what you're starting to see. You're starting to see startups everywhere accomplishing the impossible uh, in very short time periods. So I think that's sort of where he's uh, got his focus, and that's where a lot of futurists are, are, are thinking about this idea that the future, it is here, but, and we are arriving in the future all the time, mm-hmm. but to achieve the kind of future that Ray is talking about, uh, we still need a little time to get there. I think I think his estimate of 2035 is probably pretty accurate. Very interesting. Uh, by the way, uh, there's a very well-known quote, Gray. You probably know it very well, as, as I get it on this show from our panelists all the time. It's the best way to 
create, the best way to predict the future is to create it. And I went mm-hmm. to quote investigator and you know, it's been attributed as far back as Abraham Lincoln and I think Mark Train and Peter Drucker. It's actually was stated by a man, it, it paraphrased a little differently, the original by Dennis Gabor, who was the author of Inventing the Future. Did you know that? You ever heard of him? G-A-B-O-R, Gray? Mm-mm, Take no, a look. Very, very interesting because the quote it pops up all over the place, but he was the originator of the future. Thank you, Gray. We're arriving in the future right now. Put your seatbelt on. Let's bring on Jeremy C. Thomas, founder and chief catalyst at Carom, C-A-R-O-M. And he's brought me a quote from Jack White. Jack White was actually born... John Anthony Gillis, 1975, a young one, American musician, singer, songwriter. We always get these quotes from people who are so multi-talented. Record producer, actor, known as the lead guitar and singer of the duo The White Stripes, and he has been with other bands and as a solo. He's widely credited as one of the key artists in the Garage Rock Revival. I didn't know there was a Garage Rock in the first place, but I guess it got revived in the 2000s. He's won eight Grammys, and both of his solo albums reached number one on the Billboard charts. He's ranked number 70 on the 2010 list of the 100 greatest guitarists of all time. Here's the quote Jeremy has selected from Jack White. Technology is a big destroyer of emotion and truth. Auto-tuning doesn't do anything for creativity. Yeah, it makes it easier and you get to go home sooner, but it doesn't make you a more creative person. That's the disease we have to fight in any creative field, ease of use. Wow, what a quote. And I've heard auto-tuning on five-year-olds singing some amazing song, and I thought it was horrible. Jeremy Thomas, welcome back. How have you been, Jeremy? I've been well. Thank you, Bonnie. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for introducing me to this very interesting quote from Jack White. Are you a big fan of Jack White's? I am. I think that uh, his guitar playing is is incredible. The the quote that uh, I sent you came from a, a documentary called It Might, Be Le- it Might Get Loud. Um, which was about the electric guitar, and it was um, Jack White, Jimmy Page, and The Edge from U2. So I think when you're in that kind of company, you're, mm-hmm. you, you have to be a pretty amazing musician with the, with the guitar. Absolutely. So now talk to me about, we're talking designing the future. We're talking technology, innovations. We're surrounded by them, as Grace Scott says. We're arriving in the future all the time. So talk to me about this question Jack White has brought up about we have to fight Ease of use in any creative field, it's a disease. How is that impacting what we're talking about today? Jeremy? Well, I think that, you know, as we, as we think about, you know, the future being here now and, and how it's going to develop as, as we move forward, you know, a, a lot of what I am working on is making sure that we are looking at how does it actually impact and change other things beside technology. So, you know, how does it impact the the structure of an organization, the government, and the, the you know, even the the way we live our everyday lives with with regulations and rules, and how do we make sure that we're bringing the people back into the this discussion? And you know, I, I think it's great to talk about the marriage of the technology with with people as kind of the future. But the reality mm-hmm. today is that it's leaving people behind, and the people who are being left behind are the ones who don't have necessarily the same opportunities because they're being auto-tuned out um, by getting automation and getting these things that that we're focusing these technologies on. And I think if we don't bring the creative aspect, which is the one thing that people can be different uh, to things like artificial intelligence and machine learning, 
then we're going to lose out on, on the abilities and, and even what people actually are doing uh, as we move forward. What are their jobs going to be? How do we rethink mm-hmm. and redesign everything for a world where machines can do so much of it? Uh, how do we do that? And, and that's where, you know, I kind of wanted to push. And I think that's, for me, the essence of what Jack White is saying in, in that quote is, is, look, what we offer is creativity. What technology offers is ease of use and automation and those things. How do we balance and marry those things together in a real way so that we don't leave the people behind? Very well put. Very, that's very deep, actually, and very, very inspiring, yes. And brilliant things are not supposed to be easy. At least that's what I was taught. If you want to really come up with something great, you have to do the work. By the way, have you have you heard some of those, uh, I guess they are viral by now, those YouTube videos of three-year-olds from somewhere halfway around the world from where I am, I'm here in New York, who are singing some amazingly difficult operatic song that took some operatic diva 25 years to master, and this four-year-old is singing it, and, and underneath you look at the comments on YouTube, and it says, auto-tune, auto-tune, boo, 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 is auto-tune. Have you ever seen any of those or heard any of those, Jeremy? I have, I have, and uh, it's it's amazing. First and foremost, I was amazed at how many people listen to them, um, yes. but, but also it is, it is absolutely incredible how well they can change the you know the the entire sound of someone singing. It's it's incredible. Right, and you really want Simon Cowell to chime in and say, no, no, that's not his real voice. Go back and learn to sing, damn it. Yes, I I have a problem with karaoke. You know, it's one of the, I think uh, there was a survey done in the UK a couple of years ago as the most hated innovation or new invention was the karaoke machine because of the horrible singing that it produced. That's the number one invention, Brits. I'm just going to leave that one alone. Let's go around the table briefly, find out where you're calling from, if you're in the same whiteout snowstorm. We're in a blizzard here in New York. And what you're drinking to keep you warm and cozy or happy today. Josh Bernstein, where are you? Oh, I'm in the, in the Bay Area in California. It is not uh, snowing here. It is not whiteout. I flew back from the East Coast last night, so avoided the snow. People that know me will tell you I'm allergic to the snow. So I'm happy I'm not there. And uh, I'm drinking chai tea because if I have too much caffeine, I'll be crazy. Uh, <laughs> I've wanted to say that on this show for five years. and I've never said it that way. Gray knows what I'm going to say next, and so does Jeremy. I've never – I'm sorry you really got me on that one, Josh. I'm not allergic to the snow. I, lo- I love it. We're just going to leave it at that. Hot chocolate later, but I don't have any marshmallows. Gray Scott, you're in New York, I think. What are you seeing at your window, and what are you drinking today? I am also in the blizzard with you, Bonnie, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm drinking, I've, I've actually given up coffee, uh, which has been very, very hard, and I'm drinking uh, Genmaicha, green tea, so my caffeine level has taken a nosedive. Yeah. Oh, okay, well, you're always upbeat and inspirational, Gray, that's fine, stay warm and dry and safe, and they say stay safe out there, I think one of the weather forecasters says, Jeremy C. Thomas, where are you? I am also with Josh in the Bay Area, and uh, we are, uh, depending on where you are, we're in a pretty significant pattern of rain, Uh, so not white at all, but we have just had so much rain this year, um, which California desperately needs, so we'll take it, but it it has been a lot. And uh, I'm looking forward later to, um, I've got a a, kind of special whiskey that, that I enjoy that comes out of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, near Seattle from 
a distillery called Westland Distillery, and they have an American single malt whiskey uh, that they age in sherry caskets. Um, so it adds a nice little bit of a sweetness at the end of the, of, at the finish uh, of each sip as you enjoy it. And uh, I like it neat, just in a glass, and, and sip it in the evening. It would also be great for a snowstorm. So if you guys can find it, go get some. Well, I'm on the Westland Distillery website, Westland, W-S-T-L-A-N-D, distillery.com, two L's in distillery, and I can't get in because it says, Westland Distillery, are you 21 years old or older? I'm going to hit no. I'm just, Gray, I'm going to pretend access has been denied because I'm not of legal drinking age. I know it's a joke. It's a joke. A little little bit uh, a little bit heady here in, in New York in the blizzard. As Gray and Jeremy knows and know and Josh is going to find out, they don't let me have caffeine on radio show days and so i'm just drinking cool clear water and josh i share yeah it would make me crazy uh, i had it one night i thought i could beat the caffeine problem i had a cup of wonderful full strength uh, i think i had a cappuccino at around 10 o'clock at night watching some cnn program oh i saw one o'clock i saw two o'clock i saw three o'clock i saw four o'clock never slept all night lesson learned but i do have a pink straw in hopes that somewhere out there in the whiteout condition the sun will eventually come back from california to new york and gray that pink straw is for you and me both so we get some sunshine here eventually i'm bonnie d graham this is episode number two of our brand new series designing the future with game changers radio we have a very articulate astute and charming panel we have josh bernstein at dell emc we have gray scott our resident futurist and we have jeremy c thomas at carom c-a-r-o-m i always spell that one so i get it right and we want to do a shout out to charlotte Bowie and uh, jennifer ford sponsors of the series at SAP. And also, Josh, we're going to do a shout out to Teresa Wade, who is treating, tweeting and treating on your behalf. She's at Wade, W-A-D-E underscore Teresa, T-E-R-E-S-A. And she just tweeted, how do new and disruptive technologies get? And your handle is quit your joshing thinking. Find out on hashtag SAP radio. Thank you, Teresa. Wonderful to see you here on Twitter. Everyone join us at hashtag S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. The water's fine. The snow's not too deep. And you'll see what's going on on the show. So we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we will continue our topic today designing the future tech trends impact right now we're in the future so find out what's going to happen to all of us don't even think of touching that mouse that app that dial we will be right back michael out When you discuss the future design of any topic, there is one word always present, connected. As technology opens up the possibility of connection, we need to work together to ensure the ensuing change delivers forward progress to the people involved. Leaders designing a connected future will add another word to the narrative of disruption and innovation, inclusion. Join our experts as they analyze and discuss how the purposeful design of the digital world can lead to a better future for everyone. Designing the Future with Game Changers is presented by SAP. Visit www.sap.com. You're listening to Designing the Future with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Email your comments and questions to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet during and after the live show at Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. 
Now, let's get back to Designing the Future with Game Changers. We are indeed Designing the Future with Josh Bernstein at Dell EMC, Grace Scott, our futurist at SeriousWonder.com, and Jeremy C. Thomas at Carum. I'm not going to spell it again. Josh Bernstein has agreed to start the roundtable, sent me a lot of interesting notes here, and we're going to talk about drones. So, with the advent of consumable drone technology, we are seeing UPS, FedEx, and Amazon research their uses in supply chain management. Very, very interesting. Let me read one more sentence in and then Josh will expand it. If we have flying warehouses delivering products within hours, regulations will be created and will need to be dealt with. Let's just talk more about that. Josh, don't drone on. I had to say that. Somebody had to do the bada boom on that one. <laughs> but the future is now. Tech trends today. We're walking into the future, as Grace says. It's here. It's here. It's here. So talk to me. Consumable drone technology. What are we doing here? Well, I mean, I think that you mentioned one really interesting use case for drones, which is sort of package and service delivery, right? We live in an era now where everybody wants things faster and more efficiently, and they want it right now, right? There's this immediate need for satisfaction. Um, but as you pointed out, you know, if a drone has to deliver a package in the snow, um, that's still a problem. How does it land on an apartment building? How does it land at your house? How do you know that the package is there? How does it not hit a tree? There's all these sort of things that... We still haven't figured out yet. I think we're getting closer. I think we see even on the consumer side, companies coming out with drones that will do obstacle avoidance, auto detection, autopilot, that sort of thing. But where I think drones are really much more practical now, if you think about bringing the future back to now, um, there are many other commercial applications that don't get as much attention, but I think drones are a really good fit for. Um, You can think about crop surveying, for example, or um, structural review and structural repairs. Think about in California, um, you know, we've had droughts for, for many years up until apparently this year. Um, and pilots or, or farmers would spend tremendous amounts of money paying a pilot to survey their crops in order to do um, hydrology analysis to figure out where best to spend the limited water resource they had. And that flight was, you know, that, that data collection was very expensive, thousands of dollars. It would take maybe a few weeks for the data to come down to them. But now they're able to go to the store and they're able to, you know, buy their buy a drone off the shelf for a few hundred dollars that they can fly themselves over their field. So two things I think are really interesting about this. One is it saves them a tremendous amount of money. That's sort of the obvious one. But mm-hmm. two is is that the drone can fly more regularly and collect data at a resolution that manned aircraft just couldn't do. So what we see in this is we see benefits of the farmer in the financial sense. We see their ability to collect more and more data um, and more frequent data to make them help them make better decisions about where to sort of spend their spend their water budget, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we see this huge, you know, growth and explosion of data. The same thing is true for uh, structural analysis and roofing analysis. Imagine what it costs to survey the Golden Gate Bridge. You know, how do you send somebody up climbing? You fly helicopters around it. We could do the same thing with drones for a fraction of the cost and do it much more frequently and collect much more data. So I think, um, you know, what, what the biggest applications of drones are going to be moving forward in the future is not so much, um, you know, package delivery. I think we'll see that. But I think mm-hmm. more immediately we'll see more of these commercial aspects, and we'll see this huge explosion of data. And it'll be this data that becomes the challenge, how people take advantage of it, how they analyze it, how they derive meaning or intent from it. Um, and I think drones are really pushing us in that direction. So it's very exciting for me. 
Very exciting indeed. And I just want to level set here. Uh, Josh mentioned that I had talked about package delivery. We were actually off air on the break, and I said to Josh and to Gray and to Jeremy, what if I had ordered something from a fresh delivery service of, for example, organic chickens, which I order from Amazon Fresh from time to time, mm-hmm. Amazon Prime Fresh. And it, it's a whiteout. It's a snowstorm here. It's a blizzard in New York. And today at 10 o'clock in the morning Eastern was the guaranteed delivery date. How would that drone be able to navigate through the snowy skies? And where would it drop the organic chicken? And would I know when it dropped on the roof of my four-story building here? Or would it, they actually have to get a human to come and take the delivery out of the drone somehow and walk into the building and call me and deliver it. So that that was the question in case anybody was wondering. Thank you very much, Josh. Gray, we'd love to have you chime in on this, on consumable drone technology, data collection, the, the things we don't usually talk about with drones. Gray? Well, I, I think it's interesting, and this brings up some really amazing uh, futuristic uh, concepts. One of the things that we know is that the future will float. That is where we're headed. We have been wanting to get off the ground for a very long time. We have accomplished that with transportation, but now it's time to live in that space. It's time to deliver in that space. And drones are allowing us to do that. I mean, if you put on a virtual reality headset and you control the drone, it gives you a sense that you're actually flying. And so it, it, this, this idea that drones uh, could survey bridges, as we've talked about before earlier, the, the idea that these drones could deliver uh, our products, I love the idea, actually, of having factories that are floating all the time and the drones come down from these floating factories. That efficiency alone would uh, change everything. Now, to go directly to your question, mm-hmm. uh, because this is something I've talked about, uh, talked about quite a bit uh, with predictive analytics, if... If the, if the system, whatever company is using these drones for delivery, uh, they're going to be using predictive analytics to look at the weather, to look at the supply chain, to know who wants what when. And so because of that, uh, they may reroute you, as we've talked about this before on the show, uh, knowing you better than you know yourself, they may mm-hmm. say, they may suggest <laughs> something better than that organic chicken, Right something that's mm. more local, something that can be delivered while the snowstorm is going on and bypass your desire to have that thing that you think you can't have. So predictive analytics is a part of the drone structure, the system. Uh, that idea that we could reroute your desires, that's something to think mm-hmm. about when we're, when we're making these innovations. Uh, and I think that's what we're going to see more of in the future. Very interesting. Very interesting. This is certainly expanding the concept of what the, I'll say the average, I don't think anybody's average anymore, what what people think of when they think of drones. Yeah, drop it somewhere, deliver it to me now. Okay, that's it. Very interesting. Jeremy C. Thomas, we have to get you in on this. What do you think? I think the potential that, that we're offered by um, by creating, and I, and I love the term, Gray, I'm going to use it now, um, of, of the float. Um, I think the potential is amazing, and you know, I, I think as we move forward with this and, and we see the things that are out there, it's not just about delivering the packages, but there are across the board um, opportunities and, and supply chains and, and collecting data. Uh, and I think what we will see in the next couple of years will probably exponentially explode on, on drone technology, and then what do we do with it? Um, that's the kind of the next thing. Where I think it's it's very interesting is 
what are the things we're not even thinking about yet to do with drones and, and how do we, you know, expand the footprint even more and do things that are not just replacing the things that we're doing already, but are there new and novel things uh, that we can actually do with novels that, that kind of change the paradigm instead of just replacing kind of what we're doing already. Um, and that's something that I, I really think is, is an interesting uh, thought. And, and I know a, a couple of people who are working on some, some ideas, but, you know, by and large, it's, it's this idea that we can, can do a lot of the things that we do already, but more efficiently. And, uh, and I'd like to push it a little bit farther than that. Auto-tune, auto-tune. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> ease, of, ease of use. I'm sorry. Got to keep going back to that. No, I don't. Josh Bernstein, you want to quickly wrap this one up? I want to move to some topics from Gray Scott's discussion list. Josh? Yeah, sure. So I, I think, Jeremy, if you're in the Bay Area and you want to come down and experience a, a virtual reality flying a drone, you can absolutely do that. But it, it's, to me, it's about, um, it's about the things that we can't do yet. And one of those things is having this experience of flying without actually having to learn to fly. Um, if you've not done it, I encourage you to find somebody local to try it. But I think, you know, the biggest thing here is uh, how can we deal with the vast amount of data that we're going to collect efficiently? The intent is in the data, and the desire, the information is in the data. Somebody said very succinctly to me yesterday, um, I have all this data, but I have very little information. And, mm-hmm. and it's learning to deal with that vast amount of data that I think is really going to change the game uh, for us as a society in the future once we are able to collect it so efficiently. And we can talk about drones in the sky. There are drones in the water. Um, it's not just flying. I think it's also diving. But wherever we take this, uh, the data that's captured is going to change the game. And it's the desire or the ability to derive information from that, which I think is the most important part. Absolutely. We've established that over and over again, talking about all the data in the world, but you have to get actionable insights. And interestingly enough, somebody on, I think it was our Coffee Break with Game Changers show yesterday, said not only do you need to say we need to derive actionable insights from the data, you need to hire and train or hire and or train the right people to help you do that. Talking about data scientists, are they in the right place in the organization? Just a sidebar there. Gray Scott, I'm looking at your notes. Uh, two things I'm going to bring up here, Gray, and uh, you can combine them or, or tackle them separately, and then we will invite Jeremy and Josh to chime in. Number one, you say technology is a portal inward, not outward. And you mentioned AI is the key to the next level of our evolution. And then you say a little farther down in your notes, deeper conversational relationships with AI, artificial intelligence, is the future. Can you put those together for me, Gray, and tell us what this all means? Absolutely, Bonnie. Um, As I've told you before, I'm working on a book right now. And one of the chapters is on conversational narrative AI. And what I mean by that is in the future, uh, computing will be conversational, but it will also be a deeper narrative uh, process. So instead of just saying to Siri, turn on my lights or or perform some sort of operation, you're going to have a deep narrative uh, relationship with whatever AI program that you choose or that that you have in your home or your office. And I think this, this narrative uh, conversational AI is is something that goes even deeper. It, it that is the portal inward and not outward. And mm-hmm. uh, instead of auto tuning, as we we were talking about earlier, this gives technology a chance to reflect uh, who we are as a species. It gives us a chance to uh, have a companion that is 
the, the most private companion. It belongs to you. It has a relationship with you, this, this uh, AI in the future. And so you can imagine coming home in the year 2025 or 2030, and you're not just telling this AI to perform commands. The AI may be asking you very personal questions, reminding you of very personal experiences because maybe it's been programmed to show interest in certain parts of your life or certain aspects of your life. It shows curiosity about how you're feeling. Um, that, that kind of narrative computing is where I think we really instinctively want to go. Um, we're, you know, AI is, is our, this, it is our child, really. So we, we, mm-hmm. we want to create that, that same uh, emotional relationship uh, to these future AIs. And I think conversational narrative is, is the place that we're going to end up. Thank you, Gray. Very interesting comment. Before I, I invite Jeremy and Josh to comment, I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember the old joke. Two psychiatrists are riding up to their offices in a in a big building, and uh, one looks at the other and says, good morning. And then he gets off the elevator, and the, the other remaining psychiatrist in the elevator says, I wonder what he meant by that. <laughs> <laughs> So, Gray, is that what <laughs> – the old jokes were just so simple if you just took the time to wait and let it sink in. So, Gray, is that what AI is going to say? If, if you if you get in your car and it's got AI and Siri or somebody is on board and, and you say, rumble, 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 I wonder what he meant by that. Does it mean I should take the right lane and drive slower? Is he or she and the driver in a bad mood? This is not a self-driving car, obviously. So, um, is that something you see AI say? Is I wonder what he meant by that. Is that where that it will be a personal interpreter or a personal uh, advocate, Gray? Just quickly. Yeah, well, I, I think we're going to see a lot of um, deeper, sort of complex human relationships with these AI in the future. I mean, we already have people marrying their their AI girlfriends. I mean, that's already happening around the world. So, uh, you know, people have deep, deep relationships with Siri already believe it or not. <clears throat> and so imagine a machine that is asking you these really personal questions and, and following a historic, um, a historical narrative, you know, asking you about that trip to the beach when you were 12, or tell me about that story when your birthday party, uh, you know, you've got a horse, a pony for your birthday party or whatever it is. I mean, all of those deep narrative connections that you make with the AI of the future, that, relationship is going to become very complex. I think you're going to see people having marriages uh, and and deep relationships with these uh, AI of the future. Very scary. Everybody wants a relationship with Scarlett Johansson, the voice of Mm -hmm. her, the operating system. Jeremy, let's get you in on this party. Jeremy, thoughts about what Gray's been talking about? Yeah, I think that what what we're talking about here, I think the, the technology and, and the evolution that we have coming is, is absolutely amazing. And I think um, Gray uh, really does justice to this idea of the deeper narrative and the, the conversation that you'll be able to have, you know, because I, I think that's somewhat what we miss today with a lot of our technology is that, you know, it, it is still very one-sided and, and we're not able to really mm-hmm. interact with it in the way that would be more natural uh, and get us that deeper thing. Um, it, what I kind of the thought that was in my head, the question that was coming up was that I, I hope that, you know, once, once my 
my AI or, or whatever we want to call it at that time knows me so well and, and can, can provide me deeper conversations is I hope they can understand me well enough that they're able to give me advice on how to um, live my life and, or retrain myself from the jobs they've eliminated me from and, um, and, and provide me the emotional support that I need because, uh, you know, once we reach this point, unless society changes, unless things change as they are today, we're leaving a whole lot of people behind. And, and again, that gets back to my, you know, kind of my point is how do we get people uh, really to embrace that and then use what's different about being a, an actual human versus being someone who's in a deep relationship with technology. Um, and, and I think, again, this tension that exists between those two worlds is going to be one of the biggest obstacles that we're going to face, one of the biggest challenges that we face over the next few years as this stuff starts to develop. Thank you very much. Let's circle around the table to Josh Bernstein. Thoughts, Josh? Yeah, I um, I think what we've been dancing around a little bit is that technology, um, I think historically, hasn't really evoked an emotion from people. Maybe frustration, maybe people don't know how to use mm-hmm. it, um, maybe people are angry with it, but... Um, it's relatively easy to build a an artificial intelligence engine that, that you can converse with, but it's a completely different thing to build one that expresses empathy or emotion. And I think that um, that's really what's missing. I think that's what we're really talking about here is how do you teach a machine something that's not um, lacks emotion or, or lacks feelings? Um, you can give it all the information. You can give it all the data in the world. It can give you all this advice on any number of subjects and, uh, you know, a full history lesson on, on anything. But I think what really separates human beings from machines is empathy and emotion. And that's a very, very, uh, I think it's a very hard thing to teach somebody. How do you teach somebody to be empathetic? We can teach, you know, a two-year-old how to count to 10. We can teach a computer to count to 10. But it's very hard to teach emotion and feeling. And I think that's, that's kind of what we're dancing around here, going back to um, Jack White's quote about auto-tune. Um, mm-hmm. The reason I think creative people are down on this type of technology is it because it removes some emotion or some feeling from music. It may be, you know, emotion that should be removed. I mean, music that's out of tune isn't pleasing, but it certainly does have a, pers- a personified quality or, or an emotion with it. And I, I think that's the biggest hurdle we need to get over is how... And the question becomes, how can you teach a machine to have feelings? You can teach it to understand feelings. You can teach it to understand in which situations it should feel a certain way. But it's deriving its own emotions based on a conversation you're having with it, I think is a really, really hard problem. Now, um, you know, I believe, I think, you know, by 2030, by 2035, you can put a year on it right around there. We'll have computers, finally, that can, can sync or can operate at the speed that the human brain does. And while the speed will certainly help with this empathy problem, I think it's just very, very difficult to, to teach somebody about empathy. I think empathy comes from, from loss, from challenge, from struggle. It comes from sort of resistance in life. And, and computers, it's, you know, they, they're, they're built. They're not, they're not, they don't live life through an experience. So... That's the that's the part of all of this that I'm really interested in is at what point can we can we have a computer or have an AI feel or emote? 
Thank you, Josh. And I want to just call back into play here my opening quote from Walter Lippmann, who passed away in 1974. I don't even know when AI was coined as a term or when it was started to debut as a, as a process, a project, an initiative. But his quote I opened the show with, Josh, was, you cannot endow even the best machine with initiative. I think we could substitute emotion or empathy into that. The jolliest steamroller, there's the emotion, happy, jolliest steamroller will not plant flowers. So that's where he brought in from initiative, he went into emotion right away. Do you you agree with him on that one, I think, Josh? Yes? Yeah, I agree absolutely. I think that's a it's a great quote that, that ties into the the emotional aspect of artificial intelligence. I have an AI machine that I use a, a process I use, and it's called hashtag SAP Radio, and it finds the best quotes for me. Ha ha! <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I, I, th- I think Gray would appreciate that one most of all. Uh, Gray, do you want to wrap up this topic, and then I'm going to pick one from Jeremy Thomas's list. Gray, anything you want to add to this? I do, and I'm glad that um, Josh actually used a word I was I was uh, trying to focus on earlier, which is the word experience. And I think um, you know to the solution uh, that Josh is describing there, and and the thing that we should be focusing on uh, is the fact that that the AI may uh, introduce us to experiences that are beneficial for our psychology. That's that is my goal as a futurist, and I keep saying to people. What is your intention when you're creating this AI? What, what, what does it do to the human unconscious mind? And if you can't answer that, uh, then you have to question, first of all, your motives. You have to question your product. Um, we have to be very clear about um, increasing empathy through experience and experiencing someone else's life. We've seen a lot of that with the millennials seeing um, other people's lives through their screens, but to actually feel mm-hmm. what those people are feeling, I think that's the next stage. Very interesting. Thank you very much. And now, Jeremy, I'm looking at your notes here, and here's a a little bit of one with foreboding. You're quoting Christian Louis or Louis Lang, who said, technology is a useful servant but a dangerous master. I'm just going to leave that one alone. Uh, Let's see now. Uh, I want to ask you, Jeremy, you you say here, personal technology doesn't yet fit seamlessly into human life. I think we've already discussed this, but is is, is there a phrase or a branch of innovation or science called personal technology? Is that something we can put quotes around or coin it as a phrase? Jeremy, I think that's a great point, Bonnie. I, you know, when I said it, I don't think I had even thought of that distinguished. But I, in my mind, I, maybe you are right. Maybe it is something that we we kind of need to to call out a little bit more, especially if we're going to end up having this deeper relationship with it. That that it is personal, and it's it's something that doesn't exist necessarily today. So we're already on the journey, as, as Grace says, and as you pointed out, the, the future, it may very well be here, and we've started it, but the reality is that by and large in the world, it's not out there. Um, and, uh, and maybe there is this journey of, of something bigger called personal uh, technology, in quotes, that, that we need to define. And I think as we do that, I mean, this conversation we're having, and I think what's... Uh, what we're all we're talking about with with empathy and experience and all those things, those are the key aspects, and, and those are also, you know, I think back to to what I typically will share when I, I join you on the show is it's that human side of things that that mm-hmm. we're most worried about, and it's the biggest tension, and that's really what this is all about. It's how do we make sure that 
first and foremost, we protect the human element, and, and secondly, how do the machines evolve so that they can also have an understanding of what those things are? Um, how, can they ha- how can they empathize? How can they sympathize um, and when they're making some decisions or, or interacting with us on such a personal level um, to, to do that? And, and I think that's where we need to see probably a lot more growth in, in the industry from the technology side um, to really make sure that we're incorporating that back in uh, to what we're designing. Jeremy, I don't want to break your heart, but I'm looking at the New York Times.com in the tech section <laughs> and the headline is personal technology. So Ooh. little, but uh, they didn't put a, see, a copyright or a trademark sign after it. So I think we could make you the, the honorary coiner of that. I want to, I want to bring this, pull this a little farther. Uh, you say here, Jeremy, today it's clear that mistakes are made by humans in tomorrow's world. And this is something we talk about often. Uh, Gray, we talk about this. We talk about this on Larry Stoley's The Future of Cars with Game Changers. In tomorrow's world, who will bear the responsibility for smarter, quote unquote, technology, predictive, AR, VR, virtual reality, augmented reality, uh, everything. So, and, and let's, let's even talk about 3D printing and, and guns and weapons and things that are happening. So, Jeremy, why don't you draw a line in the sand here? What's your thought on who will be responsible? Then we'll quickly go around the table and get Josh and Gray to weigh in, and then we're going to go quickly into our predictions round. I know we've been talking about the future for an hour, but we will have an official crystal ball <laughs> section. So, Jeremy, who's going to take responsibility for smarter tech? Yeah, I think from you know from an evolution perspective, I think that you know the first step will probably be that the uh, the designers of tech or their insurers will have to take responsibility for it. But ultimately, when we get to this point in the future, and you know whether the quote that Gray has is right about the the dates or not, ultimately when we have that personal and that deeper relationship, I think then we can shift the responsibility back to people. Um, but really, if, if technology is going to make the decisions and we're going to design it to make the decisions, then it also has to answer for the problems and the issues that are caused by them. Thank you very much, Josh Bernstein. What's your thought? We haven't talked about ethics or responsibility or blame or guilt or culpability in a court of law. It's a little deep for us to get into so late in the show. But what are your thoughts about that in terms of this personal and not personal technology in the future? Josh Bernstein? I think personal technology is a great a great term. I think we should give Jeremy credit for it, regardless of what I'm, your time. I agree. Jeremy, Thanks. it's yours. It's yours. A new star was born today. Go, go, go ahead, Josh. Um, yeah, I, I think, uh, and I, I agree with Jeremy on this, too. I think that um, the blame or the responsibility will ultimately land on the creator. Uh, that is, until the creator has, or, or until the, the item has enough maturity um, that it can be responsible for itself. I'm thinking, you know, very much like the way we treat, treat children in our society. The parents have uh, the responsibility for the child until the child matures enough to where we believe that they can manage their own responsibility. I think we'll see that, uh, you know, with technology for, for a long while until we get to the point where, where uh, AI and technology can sort of uh, mature and grow and, and experience sort of life on its own, and it's that experience that feeds its choices, and therefore I think that's the point that we can hold it responsible for its decisions rather than the creator. I think that's the inflection point. Thank you. Inflection point it is. Gray Scott, why don't you wrap this one up real fast, and then we've got to give everybody, I'll have just 60 seconds for crystal ball. Gray, what do you think? 
Well, Bonnie, I think um, part of this is the idea that everything that technology will be is just a reflection of who we are as a society and a species. And so ultimately, we're all responsible um, for you know, accepting the, tech, the technology and how we use it and how we train it and how we code it. So uh, I think ultimately, it's, it's, it's all of us. All of us. Thank you very much. Let me circle quickly back around the table to Josh Bernstein at Dell EMC. Josh, 60 seconds predictions, crystal ball time. We're having a really interesting conversation about the future. Grace says we've already stepped in it. It's already here. It's right around us. But if you had to predict what would be different about this conversation for the year 2020, I'm going to give you that year because I like it. And Barbara Walters likes it. So we're doing 2020 today. Josh Bernstein, 60 seconds. What will be different if we met again in 2020 to talk about? Designing the Future, the Impact of Tech Trends. Go, Josh. Well, I think the first thing is we'd have a, um, a very different conversation around drones. Goldman Sachs recently estimated that the drone, commercial drone industry by 2020 will be a $100 billion industry. So I think we'll be much more accepting and we'll kind of have a lot of clarity in there. One of the things, though, that I don't think we've touched on that's, that's really interesting is uh, medicine. And this ability to diagnose people on an individual level and do personalized medicine and personalized genomics. I think, you know, maybe a little bit after that, probably 2025, 2026, um, we should be able to sequence a human genome in, in minutes for, you know, $100 for a fraction of the cost that we can do it for now. And I think that the advent that this leads for, for uh, humanity and society to be able to create drugs based on somebody's personal biochemistry to treat diseases that we thought were, were previously untreatable. Um, I'm thinking things like seizures, maybe Alzheimer's, even diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, three years doesn't sound like that much time, but um, we've been working on this for a long, long while, and I think we're getting to the point where um, this is attainable. And so for me, I hope in three years we're talking about personalized medicine and personalized genomics and what an impact that's had on our society because that is one part of technology um, that I think everybody benefits from, regardless of uh, fear of technology or comfort with technology. Um, medicine in your health is something that's truly personal. And, and that part of technology and, and using technology for that good um, is something that I'm most looking forward to, uh, say, three or four years out. Thank you, Josh. Grace got 60 seconds. What do you see in the crystal ball for 2020? Yeah, Bonnie, I think um, augmented sensorial upgrades uh, is what we're going to see by that time. Uh, We're going to be talking about the newest digital contact lens or the upgrade to your artificial limb or the newest uh, body suit, smart body suit um, that gives you extra senses. I mean, these are the things we're going to see in the future when we talk about designing the future. We're also redesigning the body in a lot of ways, and and redesigning the the sensorial experience that we have. And that, uh, when we talk about that, specifically we're talking about haptics, um, giving us an extra layer of of experience. So imagine uh, being able to hug your smart suit, and that hug gets translated to the other person wearing it across uh, the other side of the world. Those are the kinds of experiences we've been talking about on the show uh, today, and those are the things that we'll see in the future. Oh, I could give hugs to a smart suit to my grandchildren <laughs> 5, 10, 12 states away. I love that, Gray. Jeremy C. Thomas, 60 seconds. That's all we've made. 45 seconds, Jeremy. That's all we've got. Talk fast. I'll be, I'll be quick. Uh, I think that we will see uh, amazing changes within 
uh, especially machine learning. I'm already doing projects now on a soon-to-be-released uh, SAP application for machine learning, uh, and, and I think we'll see tremendous change uh, there with being able to uh, have them learn things, change the enterprise, give more data, and then to Josh's point, how do we actually analyze it? Uh, but also with the, this idea of drones, I think we're going to start seeing drones doing a lot more, not necessarily just delivering, but, but a lot more things. And I, I'm kind of excited to see what that is. And virtual reality and, and augmented reality, I, we will see things, I think, like Gray says, uh, the ability to have some tactile um, experience uh, within the next two or three years will absolutely happen. Uh, and, and a hug would be great. A uh, hug would be great. I love that. Never expected that from Gray Scott. Okay, Josh Bernstein, so nice to have you join our party here. Josh, it's just been a pleasure. I hope you'll come back. Gray Scott, you know, door is always open, and Jeremy C. Thomas as well. Shout out again to, we had a lot of people tweeting today, Charlotte Bowie and Jennifer Ford, Teresa Wade. We had somebody named Christopher Burnett. C-A-L-C-A-W-A-R-E. Shout out to you, Jeremy. You've been talking and tweeting at the same time. Always multi-talented. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Here's my call to action. And by the way, we'll be back at 2 p.m. Eastern here, snow or not, on the Business Channel with Changing the Future. Well, changing the game with HR. I got to get my 29 series. They're changing the game with HR, 2 p.m. Eastern here today, talking about core HR, changing the conversation. Lots of changes. So here's my call to action. Quick shout out to Michael at the Business Channel team. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Maybe your seatbelt will say, good morning. How are you feeling? You want it tighter or looser? What did you have for dessert last night? So what are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Designing the Future with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Thursdays on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.